Stephen Turner, noted British poet, biographer, and journalist, pens this poem entitled Creed, or what has been branded the Modern Thinker's Creed. This is the creed I have written on behalf of all of us. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe that there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and others. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What's average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns and detractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the, follower, uh, and the flowering of individual thought. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency... Sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blasts school. It is about the sound of man worshipping his maker. Stunning, to say the least. Add to that now, global pandemic, hundreds of thousands dead, and with it the cries for a solution Protests for less government intrusion, for more help. Stay out of our lives. Arrest the dissidents who aren't staying home. Keep it, all, keep it all closed down. Open it back up again. Find a cure. It's all conspiracy. It seems that our current state of affairs has only become a megaphone for a world already sick and tired of the same old thing. But the issue is deeper than just government. It's deeper than just economics and policies and global geopolitical outcomes. It's about the longing for an end to all of it. Everything that causes each of us the suffering of human indifference, the, law, the, uh, the lust for power, 
and the cycle of new promises from new leaders claiming change with no change in sight. It is the death spiral into chaos that Stephen Turner describes so effectively, and the fact that without the truth to anchor us to that extrinsic source of saving, to an intentional creator that grants us liberty, creative equality, worth, and a destiny of eternal ends, then we can expect more of the same, the same dimness and darkness of the destructive power of sin. We either have the courage to look up and believe or give up and give in. No amount of discussion, debate, or knowledge can convince anyone if they're predisposed to a narcissistic, cynical skepticism which seeks to deny for the sake of denial. That seeks to criticize because they cannot accept a moral lawgiver to which we're all accountable. That claims a so-called liberation from God when the result of such a claim becomes more of the same moral decay and indifference to the human race. No, we were made and are destined for life, for something better. The way the story ends is ultimately what you and I choose. who stand in society as moral leaders claim to have the answers to society's woes, but do not admit to society's decay, then they can neither be moral nor can they be leaders. It stands to reason that if you're going to profess to know the antidote, then you must also be able to identify the ailment. In fact, if we're going to follow this line of reasoning to its logical conclusion, then we must, as moral beings, ask the question that if we are to follow those who say they are moral, then they are admitting to be representatives of something that is separate from and outside of themselves. In other words, we must then acknowledge that there is such a thing as right and wrong. But how then do we determine what is right and wrong? What is moral and what is immoral? What is truth and what is false? Social justice, as popular as it is nowadays, with its cry of defiance by those who would see themselves as oppressed by such a system, when, when, when things go awry and the system does not work as it's supposed to, it is then that justice warriors rise up in order to bring balance back into the system. And yet many are willing to obtain this balance by the very same means by which the so-called oppressors have used in order to gain power. And so as we seek for justice, justice is ejected. As we seek peace, peace is ejected. As we seek for equality, equality is ejected. 
as we seek for morality, morality is ejected. There is no longer a right and a wrong, only a right to do as we please, and the total decimation of a system, and those who stand with that system to get at those rights. We all have a right to freedom. If there is tyranny, then let tyranny receive the response it deserves. But if tyranny be attacked by means of tyranny, then what do we call good and what do we call evil? How do we distinguish between them? If we're going to call evil by its rightful name and truly stand for the oppressed, for, for the good of all and for all, then we must first admit that we are flawed and each of us have the tendency towards evil. So we must contend with evil, but we must first contend to be good. We must become what we seek the rest of society to be. We must admit to the decay of culture if we're going to claim that there is a better way. Otherwise, you're just another voice of abstraction, saying nothing and leading to nowhere. So the moral leaders must first check themselves and must be willing to call evil by its rightful name. Because if we are to be led to a better place of good, then we must acknowledge evil and acknowledge there is a law of morality that differentiates between what is good and what is evil, thereby acknowledging that there's an author, a moral law giver. Otherwise, what are we pointing to? But when so-called moral leaders begin to legitimize immorality in the name of love or social justice, they fail to see that at the same time, they delegitimize morality and the moral lawgiver as well. Do good unto others becomes a self-prescription of good according to me, myself, and I. But this relative morality delegitimizes truth itself and leaves the world with no answers. Good can only be measured by one that is already good. How else can we know the difference between being good and being evil? Gertrude Himmelfarb writes this, What was once stigmatized as deviant behavior is now tolerated and even sanctioned. What was once regarded as abnormal has been normalized. As deviancy is normalized, so what was once normal becomes deviant. The kind of family that has been regarded for centuries as natural and moral, the bourgeois family, as it is invidiously called, is now seen as pathological. Things have changed. If we, for example, as human beings can come to be impacted to the core of our beings by the stories and pictures of refugees, children lying dead on a beach or sitting in a stupefied state of dust, disorder and destruction, blood, brokenness and displacement, families wailing in fear or praying for hope, then this in itself is evidence that all of us, no matter our color, our religious affiliation, our cultural traditions, 
the class society labels us by, what political party we're members of, etc., does not matter and has no bearing on who you really are because in that moment when all of us lie still and in shock of such portraits of human suffering and pain, we are all in that moment singing in unison because of our emotions, because of our reactions. And when we respond in love towards those who are in need of our help, it further anchors us together in that action. We become one by the truth in that we love one another. It is the very truth that we find within the Jesus worldview. It stands the test of time because it isn't just a creed. It's the essence of life. One of the greatest sins of history is slavery. It's always talked about. It's a dark stain upon the pages of our human story. What I find so incredibly inspiring is the resiliency of hope with which those who were oppressed chose to respond to slavery. And this is evidenced in the songs that came out of that time period, rich and powerful and preserved to this day, they remind us that we are indeed destined for eternal life and not some form of extinction. There's one spiritual in particular that paints a sonic portrait of that hope. And perhaps you might recognize the text. Deep River. My home is over Jordan. Deep river, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. Oh, don't you want to go to that gospel feast, that promised land where all is peace? Walk into heaven and take my seat and cast my crown at Jesus' feet. Deep river, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. Was their hope in vain? No. These songs, born out of oppression, are a reminder that no amount of hate can kill the human spirit of faith. They clung to that hope. And while many died in, the, in that cause for liberation, the promise of freedom wasn't just one realized in the here and now, but in that great hereafter. We're not a division of sub-races just because we've been told that we are. We are made of the same essence, of that same dirt that fills the earth by one dynamic and loving creator. We are one race of many colors, of many tongues, and many voices. We are one in blood, of many in thought, made equal by creation, designed for the light, fallen but redeemed, flawed but renewed. Neighbors all, travelers all, each seeking, each struggling and striving for that place across the deep river beyond the Jordan.
Thomas Merton writes, Man in modern technological society has begun to be callous and disillusioned. He has learned to suspect what claims to be new, to doubt all the latest in everything. He's drawn instinctively to the new, and yet he sees in it nothing but the same old sham. The specious glitter of newness, the pretended creativity of a society in which youthfulness is commercialized and the young are old before they are twenty, and it fills some hearts with utter despair. There seems to be no way to find any real change. The more things change, says a French proverb, the more they are the same. Yet in the deepest ground of our being we still hear the insistent voice which tells us, You must be born again. There is in us an instinct for newness, for renewal, for liberation of creative power. We seek to be awakened in ourselves a force which really changes our lives from within. And yet the same instinct tells us that this change is a recovery of that which is deepest, most original, most personal in ourselves. To be born again is not to become somebody else, but to become ourselves. In essence, Merton expresses what is the innate realization in each of us that somehow this isn't all there is. This drive that each of us has to be better comes from what is self-evident. We were created to live. Our resistance to death isn't just about a fear of death. It is that death really isn't supposed to belong. Death is an intruder. Otherwise, why do we fight it so? You know, recently I came across an interview with a mother who has a daughter with a very rare congenital disease. Its short name is SEPA, or Congenital Insensitivity to Pain with Anadrosis. This is a very rare disorder of the nervous system which prevents the feeling of pain, of heat or cold, and also prevents a person from sweating. What has been written into some science fiction stories as a superpower couldn't be further from the truth of the obvious danger this causes a person who has this disorder. And this little girl could literally take a bullet, walk through fire, or walk in sub-zero temperatures and not feel a thing. What I found so impacting about this story is when the mother reveals her greatest desire for her daughter... She says that her greatest prayer to God is, Please let my daughter feel pain. Can you imagine such a request? What most of us might see as some sort of blessing really is quite the opposite. Pain isn't something we relish. It's something that when we feel it, we wish we could take a magic wand and just wish it away. It's why when we feel it, we reach for that bottle of medication that promises to take the pain away. But if not for the pain, we, would re we wouldn't realize there was something wrong in the first place. Some pains in life cannot be taken away by pills or by modern medicine. And if you think of it, 
This mother's greatest wish for her daughter to feel pain was in fact a wish for her daughter to live. Because at any moment, this little girl could lose her life and not be aware of the reason why. It is the pain we experience and see in the world around us that makes us all conscious of our condition and that compels us to spring into action. It heightens our awareness. It drives us to look for solutions. The debilitating condition of human frailty is the demoralization Steve Turner so aptly describes. A culture that accepts all is really fated to lose all. Life and death are, are, are our choices. And we each have to choose for one or the other. No amount of ingenuity, intelligibility, or intellectualness can save the human race. The only life that can offer a painless, sinless, and deathless existence is the God who created life in the first place. Nothing else and no one else can offer us that. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.